Well, good morning, One Chapel. Hey, Brent Parsley here. I'm so glad that you came to hang out with us today. Thanks for being a part of Online Church today. Thanks for being a part of this family. Wherever you are, would you just say something in the chat? Just say hi, greet some people around you. If you like something today, give us a like or hit the heart or say amen. Repeat a point that you love today. Thank you so much for being a part of this. And hey, if you're new, if you're just kind of checking stuff out, welcome. We're so glad you found the One Chapel family. We hope you really enjoy the day with us today. For those of us that have been Christian for any length of time, you already know that following Jesus has never been very easy. Like there's a lot of conversation that's happening today about how it's actually becoming more difficult as our Western culture kind of becomes a little more, you might say, post-Christian. And the truth is today that fewer people do call themselves Christian less and less. Today in our culture, regular church attendance is on the decline and it has been for a while. And the fastest growing religious group in the U.S. today is known as the the nuns or those that have no specific religious affiliation. So as a result, some Christians feel like, as a result of what's going on in our culture, some Christians feel like they're being pushed to the outskirts of the public square, you know? Like, it's pretty easy to view that kind of a thing as some sort of a, a cultural punishment where everybody's against you. And it's just what happens when you decide that you're gonna hold to some beliefs and some values that society would like to try to abandon. So in response, what happens is some people say, well, we're being persecuted. And so what they wanna do is try to go and fight the culture war and try to retake the land for Jesus. Now, all of this assumes that Christians are marginalized because we take Jesus too seriously. So it's like, man, could you just relax a little bit? Like, if you just don't hold your beliefs so tightly, be a little more loose, you know? Don't be so hard on the popular values of our society. Why do you have to hold to those biblical values so strongly? Loosen up, and if you do, well, you can be more accepted in our culture. But what if we have all of that backwards? Like, what if the big problem has nothing to do with what's going on out there? What if the problem actually starts with what's happening right here with me? What if the underlying problem isn't that we take Jesus too seriously, but it's actually that we haven't taken Jesus seriously enough? What if our culture's, I guess, judgment of Christians isn't because we obey Jesus, but it's actually the result of the fact that we have largely ignored him. Hey, everybody, welcome to church. Aren't you glad you showed up today? I hope you are glad you showed up today because we're starting a new series and we're calling it What If Jesus Was Serious? We're gonna be journeying through a book of the same name by an author and pastor named Sky Jatani, as well as some helpful comments by a pastor named Darren Whitehead. But we're gonna be digging through the most famous sermon of all time. It's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five and six and seven. Now this is perhaps the longest and most influential sermon in all of human history. And we're gonna walk through it together line by line as we try to uncover and discover more of the Jesus way. So we're gonna be asking through this series, what if Jesus was really serious about what he taught? You know, this past week, there was a trailer that dropped all across the interwebs and it was for The Mandalorian, season two. And me and my family are incredibly excited about it. We're big Star Wars fans, as many of you know that know us. And so we are pumped for this to come out because we love the Mandalorian. 
We love the idea. We love this Mandalorian bounty hunter that is a tough guy, a man of few words, that actually finds a place in his heart for the child. For this cute, wonderful little baby Yoda. Now, if you're a Star Wars fan, don't get mad. I know it's not baby Yoda. It's the child. But for our purposes, we like to call him baby Yoda. But one of the things that we love about the Mandalorian is that he lives by this credo, this, this, uh, this set of values, this way that he's going to live. And for the Mandalorians, there is only one way to live. Part of that way is that he's going to protect this young child. And throughout the course of the series, over and over again, he ends up saying, as he's protecting baby Yoda, he'll say, this is the way. He's going to face something hard and he'll say, this is the way. He runs up against an obstacle and he pushes through it and he'll say, this is the way. It's a pretty amazing thing to think about. In the same way, what if Jesus really meant what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? What if he was really saying, this is the way that you are to follow me? Well, we think that that is what he's saying. And so in the first century, it's really interesting because the movement of Jesus' followers, they were called the way. There's this great verse in Acts chapter 19 in verse 23, and it says, about that time there arose a great disturbance along the way. Sorry, a great disturbance about the way. Now, some of you who are Star Wars fans, again, you're only hearing there was a great disturbance in the force, but get that out of your head. There arose a great disturbance about the way. It's interesting that the primary term for identifying a follower of Jesus in the early church was the way. They're a member of the way. Luke actually uses it six times as he tells the story of the first Christian community, where, where the word Christian really is only used once. So again, it's emphasizing to us that Jesus has a way and that Jesus is the way. So this verse, it has this idea of the people of Jesus bringing a disruption to a city or a place or a region, bringing significant change to the people and the places around them. This is the way. It's the Jesus way. So today what we're doing is we're starting with this introduction because there's a, there's a particular lens through which we have to read the Sermon on the Mount. We have to understand a few things as we approach the teaching. We need to know who it was written to, and we need to understand the context in which it was taught. So we're starting today in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So there are a, a few different groups that are listed here in these two short verses, right? You've got the crowds, and the crowds are made up of you know, the various people groups at the time. You've got the common people just from around the area showing up to listen. I'm sure you had some Pharisees. I'm sure you had some Sadducees there. There was probably some Zealots. There was people from a group called the Essenes. And then you have the disciples. So from these first two verses in the Sermon on the Mount, who is this sermon directed to? Well, we just saw it there in the end of Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. The Sermon on the Mount is for disciples. It's for us. It's for you and me, those of us who are apprentices to Jesus, those of us who have decided we are going to follow him. These next few weeks, they are specifically for you. And I believe that God wants to speak to you through them. But first, to truly understand the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we first, we got to understand what's happening right before this. So if you back up one chapter to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, here's what it says. Jesus... He went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, 
proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Jesus is traveling around and he's proclaiming some news. But it's not just news. This is actually some really good news, the Bible says. Now, the Greek word for good news in the New Testament is this word, euangelion. Euangelion, and it's a compound word. So you means good. You means good. And think of it like euphoria, like it's a good feeling, or a, a eulogy where you're saying some good words about somebody. And then there's the word angelion. Angelion means message. This is where we get the word messenger or angel comes from this word. So this is the message that is good. It's good news. Jesus came to announce some good news, or we'll say the gospel. Now, when you say the gospel today, many people have a sort of an idea about what the gospel is about in general, but most people, if you kind of press, even church people, they may not be able to tell you exactly what they really mean and what it is. But here's the thing. We can't begin to understand the Sermon on the Mount without understanding what this good news actually is. So what is it? Well, I want you to look at a few verses with me that kind of summarize this good news. And I want you to pay attention and see if you notice any themes that are jumping out. We're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Here's what it says. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. No, the good news of God. I'm sorry. That's, that's my fault. The good news of, the, of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God. There it is. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Once Jesus chose his disciples, he goes out on the road with a message in Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. Here's what it says. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. In Luke 9, when Jesus called the 12 together, uh, Luke 9, verse 1, it says, He gave them power and authority to drive out all the demons and to cure diseases, and He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And then again, at the very end of the book of Acts, this is what was said about the Apostle Paul in Acts 8.31. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So hey, everybody, from these verses and many, many other verses throughout the scriptures, if you had to pick one, if you had to pick one theme, one message that Jesus was teaching, what would you say that would be? Well, it's the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of Jesus. See, the good news of Jesus is that through him, through his body, through his blood, through his life, through his teaching, we all now have access to God's kingdom. We have access to his life, to his presence, to his power. And this is available and it's available to anybody that wants it. You can have it and it comes through Jesus. So this is what I want you to get today. We can't understand the Sermon on the Mount until we understand that it's about life in the kingdom. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. You know, the church that I served at previously in the 80s and the 90s, we had, this, um, we had this event that we would have, and it was, a, it was a dramatic presentation called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Some of you may have heard of it, but it's a dramatic presentation that really gave you a series of vignettes. So people from the church come, and they audition, and, and they, they present this dramatic thing where they're presenting these different scenes where uh, bad stuff happens. So invariably, there's a bunch of teenagers driving around, and they're drinking, and they have a car accident. 
And now some of them end up going to heaven and some of them end up going to hell. And the idea behind this dramatic presentation was that you would scare people, <laughs> scare people into making a decision for Jesus. Actually, I've heard of some churches, they actually would hand out tickets to heaven on the way out if you made a decision for Jesus. Now, I'm not sure that those tickets actually worked, but who knows? Here's the trouble with these sort of things. This isn't the message of Jesus. We had all the best intentions. We really did. We just wanted to introduce people to Jesus. We wanted them to have a personal, saving relationship with God. And so our intentions were right. But Jesus never gathered everybody around him and said, all right, listen up, everybody, because I'm about to detail for you how you get into heaven. So take notes, Peter, stop talking, listen up. I'm gonna tell you how you get into heaven. Jesus didn't call people together and say, yo, you guys, check this out, because I'm about to break down the entrance requirements for you to get into heaven. So pay attention, because when you die, you're gonna need a ticket to get in. You're gonna want some fire insurance to be able to get in. Actually, the message of Jesus that he proclaimed over and over again was really clear. We just read many examples. His message over and over again was, the time has come, so repent. Change your life. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it is available to you. So reimagine your life. Become a disciple. Be, follow me. Become my disciple. Be an apprentice to Jesus. See, so I think the reality is the gospel of Jesus, if it's proclaimed clearly, well, that leads to the formation of disciples. When we clearly understand what the gospel is, it ends up forming disciples. But when we get the gospel wrong, as we do sometimes, we produce consumers. What I'm trying to say is we, we just produce people who are just looking for the ticket, just looking for the answer. Just give me the answer. Just give me the fire insurance so I can escape the other place and get to the better place. Now, no doubt about it, the gospel of Jesus includes the forgiveness of sins, through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, through the shedding of his blood and the brokenness of his body, we find healing. It includes, the gospel includes the free gift of grace. It's God's unmerited favor for all of us working in our lives. Death is defeated. We have eternal life through Jesus. We have a personal relationship with him. And through Jesus' resurrection power, we all get eternal life with him in heaven. It's just that the Sermon on the Mount is more than that. The Sermon on the Mount, it's an invitation to life in the kingdom. It's an invitation for you and for me to live in God's kingdom. This was the good news. This is the message of Jesus. We read it over and over again. Dallas Willard, incredible author, an amazing pastor, he said this. He's written prolifically on the kingdom of God. And he said, the Christian life is not about getting into heaven when you die. It's getting into heaven before you die. It's, it's such an amazing idea, and it's the reality. It's the thing that we're after today. Jesus himself emphasized the importance of this when he said in Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So what this means is that the kingdom, 
God's kingdom is supposed to be the highest pursuit of our lives. It is the main goal. It is the thing that you and I, as apprentices to Jesus, that we are after. God's kingdom here on the earth. It's above our jobs. It's above our careers. It's above our relationships. It's above everything else. Jesus said, seek this first. But if we ask one another, okay, great, what is the kingdom of God? Well, most of us are probably going to hem and haul and struggle to articulate an answer. And this actually is a problem for us, everybody. If this is what we're supposed to be about above everything else, it can't just be some sort of vague idea that we're wondering about, some fuzzy theological concept that we're trying to grasp. Of course, it's hard because the term kingdom is not something that we use a lot today. In the first century, it was a reality. Everybody understood it because they often lived under a monarchy. But interestingly enough, you and I do have a basic understanding of what kingdom is from our birth. Like, think about it. If you've got kids, you know there are a couple words that they end up saying first. For every one of my three kids, there's a couple words that came out first, and I didn't have to teach them. And those words are no. It just comes out immediately, no. And the other word is mine. Mine, mine, mine. It, it just comes out. It just comes out of all of us from birth. So from the start, we believe, look, I have a kingdom. I own this, this, this space, this toy, this thing. This is all mine. Now, these are kingdom words. I've got authority right here over this. It's the language of the empire. I, we, we don't have to teach this. It's just built in. Or you might remember it when you were growing up. I, of course, have two older brothers. And so I'll remember long drives in the car on vacation. And I, of course, am sitting in the middle seat where there's that big hump on, by your feet. Some of you don't even know what that is. But, but, but I remember sitting there in the back seat and I got two brothers and they're older than me by quite a bit. And so their knees are pressing into me and they're pushing and they're just sprawled out all over the back seat. And little poor me is just seated there with my feet on the hump, just miserable. And so invariably what happens is you start pushing back. You, you start kicking them. You start moving your knee out. You start elbowing. You start pushing back. And at some point in the car ride, you end up drawing a line. There's like a dotted line in the car. And you say, this is now mine. You cannot enter here. This is my space. This is my kingdom. These are kingdom boundaries. And then, of course, your parents, well, they handle it different ways. Some parents just, you know, they're driving, they're just reaching back. Some of you have parents like that, just reaching back, trying to solve the problem. Or other parents just slam on the brakes and everybody ends up in the front seat. Either way, we understand deep in our core what kingdom means. To be human is to have a kingdom. You even see it at the beginning of creation in Genesis 1, 26. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. He says rule. He uses that word rule. Rule is kingdom language. This idea of kingdom, it's really embedded into our, into our humanity. So in the most famous prayer of all time, in the most famous sermon of all time, kingdom shows up again. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, this then, Jesus says, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the prayer that Jesus tells all of us to pray is not, God, help me get out of here. 
help me get out of here so that I can go up there to be with you. That's not how Jesus taught us to pray. Jesus teaches us to pray, make what's up there come down here. The prayer of Jesus is, make what's up there, the kingdom of God, come down here to the earth where we live. Jesus' message is, the time has come. The kingdom is available. It's right here at hand. How is it possible that we've sort of, we've sort of missed this message of Jesus again and again and again? And so how did the kingdom come? How is it here? How is it at hand? And the answer, of course, is it came through Jesus. Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom. In other words, Jesus is the kingdom bringer. Jesus showed up and brought his kingdom to bear. And so as we start this series, I just want you to understand this simple thing today, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a it's not general moral advice for us. It's not telling us just the ways that you should live your life to be kind. The Sermon on the Mount is not a series of positive lifestyle principles that we should all live by, nor is it a set of rules that we got to follow to try to be good. No, the Sermon on the Mount is a bold, life-changing invitation to join King Jesus in bringing what's up there down here. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about, and that's what you're invited into as a follower of Jesus, bringing heaven to earth. So what that means is over the next several weeks, over the next many weeks, we've got to read the Sermon on the Mount with kingdom of God lenses. Every time you approach it, put them on. The Sermon of the Mount has to be read with kingdom of God lenses. Another way to say it is the Sermon on the Mount, it's not prescriptive. So that means you don't have to, it's not something where you follow these rules if you want to try to get these results. Do this thing that Jesus said and you'll be able to have this. That's not what it is. The Sermon on the Mount is descriptive, meaning as we read it, it's describing what life in the kingdom of God actually looks and feels like. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation from King Jesus. It's a challenge to us to walk away from consumer Christianity to become a true disciple of King Jesus. Pastor Darren Whitehead, he would say it like this, the Great Commission is to make disciples. The manifesto of what that looks like is the Sermon on the Mount. And again, Dallas Willard, he says, a disciple of Jesus is one who practices his presence and arranges his or her life in such a way as to live as Christ would live if he were them. And that's what we're trying to orient ourselves around over the next several weeks. So as we go through this, as we close, in Matthew chapter five, we're gonna learn pretty quick. There's a standard, everybody. Matthew 5, 48 says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect, just be perfect. And that feels a little disconcerting to most of us. All you gotta do is be perfect and you got this. Darren Whitehead again, he says, the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a lifestyle code to measure ourselves against. It is a wall of impossibility that we crash into. And we're gonna discover that pretty quickly. We can't do this on our own. One of the things that is really great about America is that Americans, you know, we really love success. We love overcoming. We love facing the problem and doing this ourselves. We love a good success story. It's why I love Rocky Balboa. It's why I love Rocky's journey. It's the same reason why I love Daniel LaRusso. 
facing all of his bullies in the Cobra Kai and fighting back, overcoming, and being the champion of the All-Valley Karate Tournament. It's why I love those things so much. But this can also be a problem because we celebrate that success so much in our world. We celebrate it in the church too. We celebrate big churches. If they're growing, we say, yes, we celebrate that. That's amazing. And there are great things about that. We celebrate celebrity church leaders. Oh, they've got such a great following. God's doing such a work. But this can sort of distort our understanding of the gospel if we're not careful. We celebrate all of the success and we forget the gospel is for people like us who have failed. The gospel is for people like me. Like it's good news for me for people who don't have it all, for people who don't have it figured out, for people who still get mad at our kids and yell from time to time to time. But just prior to the Sermon on the Mount, in the way Matthew's gospel reads, we see something pretty astounding. Matthew chapter three, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So what had Jesus done to get such resounding affirmation from the Father at this point? I'll tell you what he did. He worked a blue-collar job in obscurity. He was raised in a working-class family. He's working with his hands every day. He had no public ministry, no accolades. He's just hidden for 30 years. And God says, this is my son. He affirms his identity. This is my son whom I love tells him how he feels about him. With him, I am well pleased. What I want you to realize as we come up against the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus was able to do ministry not for the favor of God, not to earn anything, but from the favor of God because God was already pleased with him. So rather than cowering and being insecure about what other people would think and what other people would say, he has this blessing from his father in heaven before he's ever done a single thing. So as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, you and I, we get to choose. We can either try to be successful, rise up, do the crane technique to the Sermon on the Mount, like try to get through it, be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, rise up, overcome, be good, conquer. Or if you're like me and you don't quite measure up to that, then you can enter with me through the grace of Jesus. Through the price that Jesus has paid for all of us. Because the message of Jesus is good news. Not for all the success stories. Well, not just for them. But for failures like me. The gospel of Jesus is for those of us who wrestle with frustrations of why we continue to fall back to that habit of that same sinful pattern. The gospel's for people like us. So the invitation to the kingdom of God is that we get to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, but it only happens through the blood of Jesus. It's not the American success story. It's the gospel for broken people that rejoice because the price for all their sin has already been paid and taken care of by somebody else. And through resurrection power, we get resurrected to be sons and daughters of God. We're heirs to the Father and co-heirs with Jesus, his son. And we get invited to participate in the life of the kingdom right here on earth. Amen. And actually, what I really think is, this is the message 
this message of Jesus, this is the message that our society actually is hungry for. If you're worried about being pushed to the outskirts, this is the message that our culture is hungry for. They're hungry for this kind of integrity, this kind of kindness, this kind of love that Jesus reveals in the Sermon on the Mount. So those of us who follow Jesus and seek to live a life that's shaped by his kingdom, we have the answer. If we're living a life shaped by the kingdom of God that we're gonna uncover and discover in the Sermon on the Mount, we have the answer to the division and to the anger that's poisoning our current culture. So if we wanna take, if we want our culture to take Jesus more seriously, maybe we should just try to do so first. Right there where you are, would you bow your head, close your eyes with me, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for life in the kingdom. And we say today that we want to learn how to participate more and more with the kingdom of God here on the earth. We want to continue to follow in the Jesus way. We want for one chapel to be a place where people discover life in the kingdom. And from out of the one chapel family, stepping into our culture, we step out with the love and the grace and the life of Jesus, with integrity and kindness. And by your kindness, as it works in our culture, in our workplaces, in our family, and in our friends, your kindness draws people to repentance and they experience life in the kingdom of God. Lord, would you deposit that into our lives, into our church, into each one of us individually. And for any of you that today would say, I don't even know how to step into that. It's, it's new to me. Well, you may not have ever made the decision to surrender your life to King Jesus, to step into his kingdom and allow him to be the ruler over all of you. And you can do that. Actually, it's a prayer away. And, and if you just pray this from your heart, and if you just decide today, I'm gonna surrender everything. I'm gonna step into the kingdom of God. You can live a new life, life in the kingdom right here on the earth. So, if that's you, I want to invite you just to pray a prayer with me. You might say something like this, Jesus, I choose to believe in you. I choose to believe in your kingdom. I choose to believe that your sacrifice on the cross paid for all of my sin. And so I receive that today. I ask you to forgive me for my sin and the way that I've been living. I ask you to come and fill my life. Be the king over all of me, the best way I know how. I surrender myself to you and your kingdom, and I'm gonna seek your kingdom first. Help me to live under your lordship. And I thank you for this in Jesus' name. And God, for every person praying that prayer, I ask that you would just help them, give them the grace, give them the strength to continue on in your kingdom. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for it. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen.